Hello and welcome to Bedside Matters. This is the podcast that addresses the medical issues that happen to impact every single one of us every single day. So we will hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and of course healthier. That's what this is all about. I'm Peter Tilden and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper. How are you, David? Always good to see you. I'm great, Peter. And yourself? I'm doing very, very well. And Anna Vicino, you're well, Anna? I'm doing great. But is it great to see me? Oh, wow. Yes. Mm -hmm. No, it's fantastic to see you. It's not just great, it's fantastic to see you. Great to see you too. Today, we're going to be talking about some very exciting things. First of all, um, developments with the vagina, the microbiome. We're going to be talking about that, as well as a new lipid that could cause some coronary issues with cholesterol. Also, and this just happened, there is a new pill that's coming out, I think. It's just about to come out, I hope, if it's approved. And we'll find out from David for postpartum depression. And we have a caller today who's asking about a disease that may or may not still exist. And I'm questioning it too. So And it's not smallpox. It's not smallpox. What's going on with this new research on the vagina and and the microbiome? We have spoken a lot about the microbiome in the gut and how critical that is to our immune system, to our developing neurotransmitters, and a number of different things that the body depends on. And what we're learning now is that the vagina itself has its own microbiome. And now looking at that microbiome in the same way that we were looking at the gut, we're learning about what treatments, what diagnostic capabilities we'll get out of the microbiome in the vagina. It's very interesting. And the microbiome has very, just like the gut, it has very specific bacterial colonies and viral colonies and fungal colonies. And from this, we're hoping that we're going to be able to understand this balance of these different organisms so that we might actually develop new treatments and we might also use the vaginal tissue to diagnose diseases. So as an example, thrush. 75% of women have had thrush, and it's a fungus, and it comes because the microbiome in the vagina is upset. Are we not allowed to call it a yeast infection, or it has to be called thrush? We can call it a yeast infection. Is that better for you? (laughs) Well, because thrush, I always think of in the throat, like when babies get thrush, and then a yeast infection, I don't know. But it's the same thing, it's right? It's an overgrowth of candida? It's the same thing, And and it... If you think about the gut, people that get small bowel diseases, irritable bowel, they have an overgrowth of certain colonies of bacteria, and that creates an imbalance, and that creates the intestinal spasms. And so the vagina is not getting off easy with this either. It's the same issue. So when the the vaginal bacterial colonies go out of balance, they favor the development of fungal illnesses. So if we can just figure out which bacteria are out of balance, maybe Mm. we can develop some therapies. Hey, any advances here? So from the female vagina, because you're talking about um, all of this information that can give us new, new leads on diagnostics. Is it only female diagnostics or is there anything in there because of the way it works in the bacteria in the biome that it works? It's universal, female, male. That's a great question, Peter. What we're learning is that it is really relevant to female diseases, female cancers. That's where we're seeing these, mm. these changes. 
So we have care products for the vagina. Let's use a tampon as an example. So a tampon is a foreign object, and the tampons, we've learned, can cause toxic shock syndrome, right? And which is uh, potentially lethal. And so, again, if we can understand the microbiome's reaction to the tampon, we could probably do something to the tampon to, with either probiotics or something else to restore that balance. So it's a very interesting subject now because this is information that we really didn't have. The vagina is very, has a very uh, dense blood supply. It's easy to access. It's better to deliver medications through. These treatments don't go through the gut or the liver, so you don't get those metabolic side effects. And it becomes a very interesting and potentially exciting um, new land for us for diagnosing and treating. The makeup of the microbiome is interesting. The, The primary bacteria, the biggest microbe in the in the vagina is the lactobacillus. And when there are changes in the lactobacillus, we get a condition that's called bacterial vaginosis. And bacterial vaginosis is also very common. And it again, it's a disruption in these in this balancing act of all these different organisms. But when you get bacterial vaginosis, what happens clinically is that there's a sort of a stinky discharge. But that sets up a, a, an environment for people to be more likely to get STDs, to have preterm birth issues, Ooh, uh, yeah. pelvic inflammatory disease, urinary tract infections. And so that lactobacillus is really critical to this balancing act. In, in pregnancy, what happens, several things happen in pregnancy, but one of the things that happens in pregnancy is that there's less diversity in the microbiome and the levels of lactobacillus can go down. And if they go down enough, that can create some inflammation in the vagina. It can result in complications with the pregnancy, can also result in infertility. So again, a very delicate balance. When, When it's out of balance, we call this dysbiosis. So dysbiosis just means that the microbiome in the vagina is not doing a good job. And it's setting the organism up, us, for illness and for cancers. And things like menopause, which are are the result of changing the estrogen levels, that changes the microbiome. Mm -hmm. And it creates endometrial damage. It's what creates the dryness. It's what creates the uh, painful sex called dyspareunia. Uh, women have testosterone. We have estrogen, but women have also have testosterone. When those levels go down, <laughs> when they have low T, uh, that creates some vaginal atrophy um, and some changes in arousal, lubrication, and our old friend dyspareunia comes back. So a lot of things can change the microbiome in the, in the vagina. We can also use, again, use the micro biome in the vagina to treat certain things. The vagina can absorb hormones. So estrogen, progesterone, testosterone uh, treatments can go there. Birth control, there's a ring that can be inserted into the vagina that secretes these and they can be absorbed that way. If we know the lactobacillus is responsible for most of these changes, 
giving probiotics that are primarily lactobacillus can actually restore a good microbiome. So when these changes happen in this area, uh, we see a direct relationship between certain diseases that females get and female cancers. And <laughs> this can make Peter laugh. They're also researching microbiome transplants in the vagina. We've talked about we've talked about transplants, microbiome transplants. So, question for you, and I, I this was something I heard. You know, I obviously had my baby a long time ago, and things have changed. But I remember there was a. I had a friend who had a C-section and it was her doula or her midwife or something. She was at the hospital, but cause you're talking about like all this microbiome so that when the baby was born, so the baby's not going through vaginally. Right. So this lady took like basically like wiped her vagina and then wiped the baby so that the baby would get some microbiome. But like, it makes sense if we need the babies to go through the vaginal tract, and that's how they get the mother's microbiome. I, I don't know. I just remember her telling me that story. And I was like, what? <laughs> that sounds crazy. But now that you're saying this, it sounds like it actually is important. Wait, wait. The, grab a handful of microbiome on the way out? I don't understand. So Re the baby it? goes through the vagina. The, ba the, the face of the baby, the whole body of the baby is going through the microbiome. So the gut and the vagina, they work together. They're symbiotic. Their microbiomes work together. So if you think about what the gut's microbiome does, it helps with immunity. And that's what's happening when the baby goes through the birth canal. It's getting the mother's immune system to some degree. It usually takes about six months for that to mature. But there are things in the microbiome and the vagina that the baby needs. Well, I think what this proves is that vaginas are very exciting and still not very understood because we have a lot to learn. Um, but now we're going to move on to something else that we have a lot to learn about, which is cholesterol and discovering a new lipid that may be a corollary to coronary. What, what's happening here? 30 years, we've known that cholesterol is the basis of plaque that builds up in the arteries. And we've identified the lipid that's responsible, the cholesterol lipid that's responsible. And it's a lipoprotein. It's, a, it's an LDL, the low-density lipoprotein. And that is something that we treat with statins. Everyone's familiar with that. And that keeps the lipid levels way down. But we're still seeing coronary disease, even in people that are well-controlled on their statins. So we know that there's a missing piece of this puzzle. And that turns out that that missing piece of the puzzle is another lipoprotein. It's lipoprotein A. And it is a variant of the LDL that we've been treating all these years. And that's an LDL-C, and this new one is the lipoprotein A. So it's different in many ways, and in some ways it's very much the same. What's really interesting about this is that if you have high levels of lipoprotein A, you are predisposed to not only atherosclerosis, but you're predisposed to other vascular issues that we don't really see as commonly with the LDLC, meaning lipoprotein A can predispose to stroke, to aortic valve disease, uh, peripheral, peripheral artery disease. 
These are things that are specific to lipoprotein A, but they also contribute to the coronary artery disease. And that may be an explanation or why we're not really solving this puzzle with just using the statins. So it's probably 20% of the population have this carry this lipoprotein A. Um, it is, again, responsible for inflammatory changes in these vessels. It creates clots. It creates plaque. If you have lipoprotein A in your system, and you can test for this, by the way, you have a three times higher likelihood of getting other cardiovascular diseases like we just mentioned, peripheral vascular disease, aortic valve disease, and stroke. These levels are genetically determined, as are the LDL lipoprotein Cs are genetically determined. Um, and those people that are at risk, people that are listening, you're at risk if you have a strong family history of coronary artery disease. If you've tested positive on that screening test for coronary disease, which we've talked about is the calcium scan, smokers and diabetics are predisposed just from that to getting vascular disease. So again, if you have any of those issues, you have to be careful and you should test for lipoprotein A because now you're putting wood on a fire. There are some therapies for this. There's one therapy, there's a current therapy, and there are a couple interesting emerging therapies. But most important that there's a blood test for lipoprotein A. There was a long time, years, where we didn't do anything with this because we, first of all, we didn't understand its negative influence. We also didn't know what to do about it. It turns out that these monoclonal antibodies uh, that we use for cholesterol, the lipids that we are chasing, the LDLCs, uh, they cut off the production of cholesterol molecules. And again, it's a monoclonal antibody that gets in the production line and shuts it down. And it does a pretty good job. In fact, it can limit the risk 20 to 30% for the damage from lipoprotein A. But what's in development is really interesting. And we've talked about gene editing until I'm sure everybody is bored with this. But we're editing genes, specifically the RNA in genes, that are also involved in the production of this cholesterol. And those therapies can reduce the risk by 90%. So when these therapies come out, this will be really groundbreaking. Uh, we use things like nicotinic acid, which is niacin, which can also reduce lipoprotein A, but nobody can take niacin. If you flush, you feel terrible. It's really difficult. It's, it's, it's a hard treatment. So the, the bottom line here is if you are at risk for coronary disease, for any of the reasons that we mentioned, ask your doctor to check your lipoprotein A. Does it cost anything extra? Or is it the same blood test that you're doing anyway? I think it, of course, would cost something extra, but you get it with the same blood sample. You know what? I've gotten my lipoprotein A tested, and oh. I had to ask for an advanced lipid panel because my LDL came back high, so I asked for an advanced lipid panel, and then lipoprotein A. Not great, guys. Not what great was, over here. Do you remember wow. the number? Critical number is over 50. It was over 50. Okay. <laughs> But you know what? I, I actually talked with my doctor and we decided to do some ultrasounding of my 
carotid, popliteal, and femoral arteries and didn't find any buildup. So she said, let's just keep scanning you. So that, I don't know. I just, Anna, was that recently that you did this? Yes. In, well, 2022. And I also got my CAC calcium score test, which was zero. So between all this stuff, it's like that marker sounds very scary and I have it. And so I don't want to tempt fate, I guess. But you're doing the right thing. You're doing your screening and you're getting these ultrasounds, which are non-invasive and the CT for the coronaries, non-invasive, simple, uh, low low dose radiation. So prevention, very important. David, if you don't, if for, like, I don't know Nana's case, but parental stuff, if you don't have parents living and you don't know your family history of that, how, how important is that piece to the puzzle? It actually is very important, Peter, and it, it, it is a greater incentive to go do these preventative tests so you know. If you don't know, got it. Maybe we should do this just happened because this just happened. It's amazing. They're looking at a pill for postpartum depression and in prepping for this show today. I didn't realize how many women had postpartum depression that's just over the, you know, I'm down and I'm a little bit bummed section into the, I'm, I've got trauma up to, I can't look at the baby and I'm suicidal. It's wow. Mm -hmm. I did not realize the number. Yes. It's immobilizing. And one in eight women that deliver develop postpartum depression. So it's not uncommon. And what is sort of interesting at the high risk for this genetics play a role moms that deliver twins are at a higher risk first time mothers are at a higher risk being under 25 is a risk factor and unfortunately women of color have a higher risk uh, what what's sad about this is that the children from moms with postpartum depression end up with much higher developmental problems and mm. health problems in general. So the children are also affected. And Peter, what you said is, you know, this is, this is what it looks like. Incredibly sad, anxious, tired, panicky. Uh, they reject the children. They don't bond with the baby. And it's, it's a really difficult problem. And what we've been giving people are the SSRIs, these serotonin products. The problem with those is that they take six weeks, eight weeks to work. So enter Zoranolone. Zoranolone is the pill. It's the name of the pill. And it works within two days what? to help reverse the depression. And it's given to women as soon as they exhibit this degree of depression and they keep people on this for 14 days, and the most women get better. So it, it's incredible. It's it's a neurosteroid, so it's a it's a progesterone uh, byproduct, by the way. But it works in the brain, and the way it works in the brain, we're getting back to our old friend gabapentin. It it hits the gabapentin receptors, and gabapentin is responsible for mood and anxiety, and the drug works. It's not the first drug for this problem, but it is the first pill for this problem. In, in 2019, uh, they came out with brexanolone, and brexanolone also had some positive effect, 
But there were a couple problems with brexanolone. The first one was that it required a two and a half day continuous infusion. And nobody's happy with that. But the tip of that iceberg was the cost. Take a guess what that cost would be. $1,000. For a two-day infusion of what's it called? I'm buying time. <laughs> Brexit. Brexit. Brexit alone. Are Brexit you alone. buying time or are you using your computer? You know what actually I was thinking of? Yeah, are you song? Googling right now? What? No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Brexanolone, I was just trying to think of, I heard it through the grave. I'm trying to think of what song Brexanolone would be using. So we have $1,000 from Anna. I was going to say $10,000, but. $34,000. Okay. What the, by the way, if you weren't, you're getting this drug for depression and then they're charging you $34,000, I'm all depressed again. Oh, you're so sad. You're so sad because you're so broke. You're so broke. Oh my God. So look at the advantages of this pill. I think this is really a, an interesting breakthrough, and I think it's going to help not only a lot of moms, but it's going to save a lot of kids. Well, so is this something that they're going to be able to use for other people with depression, maybe who didn't just give birth, or is this going to be specifically reserved for postpartum depression because of well, the that, hormonal that's stuff? that's a really interesting question. And if you remember our conversation, I think it was our last episode where we talked about the fake alcohol. That's right. uh, that this alcohol and the fake alcohol was created by just stimulating these GABA receptors in the brain. And that's how you get the pleasurable effects of the alcohol. And then as the alcohol is broken down, it turns into other substances, metabolites that give you all the negatives. So they figured out a way just to stimulate the GABA receptor. So Anna, to your point, yes. I mean, it makes you think, why can't everyone just be taking GABA? I would like that pill. You're no kidding. (laughs) Lori raised her hand. I prescribe a lot of gabapentin. I mean, it's really a, it's a nice anxiolytic. It, it's natural. The body makes it. So you're not going to get addicted to this. Mm. And you're not going to ruin the receptors by taking it uh, exogenously. No, you're not going to overwhelm the receptors. And it's a good sleeping pill. You take it an hour before you go to sleep and then a double dose of that when you get into bed. And people sleep really well. So ask your doctor about gabapentin and how, how, how it's good for you, how it may be good for you. And also ask what exogenously means. Did you just use that word? Yes. You want ex- exogenously, use it in a sentence. When you take something that's outside of you as opposed to your body producing it inside of you endogenously? That's right. Endogenously. Exactly right. And depression, there's an exogenous depression that comes from a situational issue and an oh. endogenous depression which is someone that's born with that depressive <laughs> just who you are as a person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you can have both. So if you oh, have an endogenous depression and something really goes wrong. Yes. Um, which it will because life. Going to be grabbing for the gabapentin. <laughs> Anna, will you do a word every episode? I would love to. Thank you. <laughs> Next week, pleather. So we have our caller, and hey, what about me today? It's really interesting, because when we heard it, we went, boy, I hadn't thought of that disease in a long time. And does it exist, or doesn't it exist Have anymore? you guys guessed what it is? Um, we probably put it in the show notes description, so you can cheat. Just look. But here it is if you haven't looked. Hi, Dr. Kipper. I was recently vacationing in Hawaii and was thinking about going to visit uh, the 
island of Molokai, but if memory serves me correctly, this used to be a leper colony. And it got me thinking, have they found a definitive cure for leprosy or are people still suffering from it? Thanks. So to answer this interesting question, if you're going to Molokai, you are not likely to get leprosy. However, if you're going to central Florida, you have a pretty good chance of running into leprosy. And when I was in medical school, we were taught about leprosy for about 30 seconds because we knew we would never see it. We knew they were all in colonies. And in 1950-51, they came up with a three-drug antibiotic regimen that cured it. And it took two years to cure it, even with these medicines. But in my in, in my training, I knew I would never see a case of leprosy, and I That's still That's what have. wiped it out? Yeah, the, the antibiotics wiped it out. Okay. It's a bacteria. It's a mycobacteria, so it's actually related to tuberculosis. But we're now seeing, in the last um, 10 years, there's been a doubling of the cases of leprosy. And we see about 200,000 cases a year. So it's there. Only in Florida? 80% of the cases in the United States are in Florida, what? central Florida. Why? Because of all the swamps? Or like... there, well, there's another reason, because not only can Humidity? you catch it as a bacteria where people are coughing on you, sneezing on you, it's a droplet infection, like you catch the flu or you catch a pneumonia. So it's, it's transmitted oh through droplet infection. You can also get this by playing with a specific animal. Can either one of you Alligator. guess? Alligator. So close. Crocodile. Very close. Wait a minute, who's playing with an alligator? Who would be playing? They play with alligators there. <laughs> oh, they boy. wrestle them. In the listening audience, if you had guessed armadillo, you would have ah. been right. So armadillos, are they naturally carry this bacteria. Wow. And so you can catch it from armadillos. You can still play with your snakes and your alligators, and you'll be safe. That's true. The okay. leper colonies always interested me. And in Molokai, the leper colony that was established in the 1860s, by the way, the Hawaiians passed a law that you could arrest somebody and transport them to this island. And so now, if you were to go to that island, which was our caller's question, you will find a national park. It's now a national park. And Believe it or not, there are still some people with leprosy in this park. Not a lot. And What? Yes. So I wouldn't go there personally. But uh, if you're a national park fanatic, wow. be careful. Isn't there like a Four Seasons there too? By the way, India has 700. Didn't they get the antibiotic memo? I, I don't understand this. If it's curable... No one told India, hey, guys, I, I, you're not going to believe this, but about 30 years ago, they came up with a three-shot thing, and it's over. I mean, really? They kept it from middle of Florida and India. Well, again, I can't answer that question. I'm not an expert on Indian medicine. But All right. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, great, great note to end the show on. Let's recap, shall we? Vaginas, great news about the microbiome in the vagina. Good news for diagnosing and treating female health issues and cancers. Great. We love it. And the cholesterol, the, I can't even remember, apolipoprotein A, is that what it's called? Apo That's exactly right. Apolipoprotein A. Very good. So if you have coronary disease, if you're at risk for coronary disease, ask your doctor to do a blood test for lipoprotein A. And this just happened. We're looking at possibly 
a pill for postpartum depression that could be out soon, right, David? Seronolone, it's out very soon. It's a 14-day pill, and it works in a couple days, and it will change the relationship between mother and child and mother and everybody else around the mother. And leprosy, if you're looking for leprosy. <laughs> India is a good stopping off place, and Central Florida. Those are the hot spots. By the way, if anybody out there has a question for Dr. Kipper, why don't you head on over to bedsidematters.org, put your question in there, leave us a message, and your question might be answered on the air by the man himself. Exactly. And I'd like to thank Dr. Kipper, of course. Make sure to check out his book, Override, which is all about brain transmission and neurotransmitters and why you perform the way you do or don't. And Anna had her, her, um, her sauces in last week. I finished your sauce. It's so great. Oh, How many different you. ones do you have? Like four? We have five flavors. We're about to sell our five pumpkin flavors. marinara for the fall. Oh, wow. So check mm-hmm. it out. com. It's got her cookbooks. It's got her sauces. It's got her rubs. And everything is what? Gluten-free, right? Gluten-free? Always. Grain-free? Always yeah, gluten-free, always sugar-free. There you go. So and thank you, producer Laurie Crimmy. And thank you, by the way, for listening to Bedside Matters. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, we're here to help. We offer new episodes every Monday. So follow us, like us. Have a great week. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.